Vodka. Vodka. o'clock. Hey everyone, it's Amber Love and you are listening to Vodka O'Clock from AmberUnmasked.com. You can sponsor the show now and the website. Just go to Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked and you can pledge as little as $1 and that basically works out to a dollar a week. So for the first time, comic book writer and fun guy from Twitter, Brian Visaggio, comes to Vodka O'Clock. We're going to talk about comics, his influences, why he loves Power Rangers, and uh, whatever else comes up. So, Brian, thanks for being here. It's glad to be here. So um, we are going to talk about your Stronghold miniseries. Um, uh, how many issues do you have planned for this? Um, well, uh, we've got 12 issues plotted out. Um, we're taking actually a bit of a break after issue eight to do a different book. Cause we've been working on, we've been working on stronghold for so long at this point that we kind of want to do something else for a little bit. Okay. So, um, cause I, I was just, I realized that I said mini series and then I thought, Oh, maybe it's not a mini series. It's, it's, we ac- originally plotted this thing out as this absolutely massive thing. And, um, we, uh, we decided we were just going to do the first act of it. Okay. So what is, the the stronghold elevator pitch. Uh, Twenty years ago, the Earth was conquered by space aliens, and it's up to a group of superpowered armored space ninjas to uh, free the planet. Okay, yeah, um, you know because the name doesn't really give it away, so uh, I wanted to make sure that people understood that this is like a real like sci-fi intricate and aliens. Um, Epic. It's a very space opera feel to it. Yeah, I, I generally describe it as Power Rangers meets Battlestar Galactica, which is probably the most accurate description I could give it. Power Rangers or Grown Ups is, you know, the easiest way to describe it. Right. Well, when I uh, had had read through the first three issues, and I got to, we're going to get a little bit spoilery, not really spoilery, but we are going to talk about what's going on here. I just want to give. It's it been out for long enough that at this point, you know. It's not too spoilery, and we're, we're issue six is uh, is out, so we're going to be talking about you know things that you see early on. Um, when I saw these uh, the devices that transform them and give them these cool outfits, these you know like you're saying super super powered sort of, of outfits, um, it reminded me of Battle of the Planets. Yeah, that's a that's an influence too. I mean, we're all coming um, we're coming at it. Uh, sort of similar material power rangers and battle of the planets um and lots of other lots of other sort of uh, japanese properties um are all sort of working within a single genre of people in you know like space themed colorful costumes um fighting aliens you know you see it all the time you've got voltron you've got battle of the planets you've got uh, all the super sentai shows which is where power rangers comes from um, common writer, uh, and, and on and on and on and on. This is just an ongoing <clears throat> sort of, uh, uh, genre. I never, uh, I never even watched Power Rangers. I, I, that just, uh, was not something that ever came across my radar. But, um, but I remember watching Battle of the Planets and yet I don't remember what it was about, but I remember watching it all the time, like all the time. Yeah, and, same thing. And both- now, like Voltron, I can't tell you a single plot point ever, but I know I watched it all the freaking time. <laughs> uh, Voltron barely has a plot to begin with, so, you know. 
<laughs> so that might be okay. It's just it was good. It was good visual eye candy, I guess. Yeah, when when Voltron was on, I was like five. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm lucky I remember the show at all. I was obsessed with it when I was a kid, but by the time Power Rangers came out, I'd more or less forgotten it existed. It's one of those things where when people start talking about Transformers, I just zone out because I'm like, I watched Voltron. Like, <laughs> I never watched Transformers. But, um, so, you know, the the Sentai aspect of this, uh, where you've got a team, they have similar outfits and uh are their powers going to be the same, or is this is it that um, that all of their powers represent something different? Um, we didn't uh, spend a lot of time going into developing their powers. Um, mostly important thing to be aware of is they have been you know enhanced speed and agility. They have these weapons they can summon out of the ether, and you know they're invulnerable to bullets and that kind of thing. Um, like originally, we had these separate sets of powers. You know, like one person could teleport, one person could generate force fields. But within the confines of the reduced arc, um, I, I was just much less interested in developing individual powers than I was in developing personalities. You sort of reach a point um, as a writer where you have to, you know, make decisions versus what's going to be world buildy and what's going to drive the story forward. And I figured if people see them using specific powers, they'll just assume they have that power. Uh, but I, I'm 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 not uh, I'm not terribly interested in, in <clears throat> laying all that out in detail. Okay, um, that makes sense. It's uh, it's sort of that that show don't tell. Yeah, the thing though is that like I love you know like watching like first episodes of like like children's superhero shows where they basically lay out and here are all the toys. You know, you know. Each each character is defined by this one power, and you see them use it in a really you know spectacular way, very at the very beginning to sort of establish that's what they can do. But it's a really artificial way to structure a story, um, and I just didn't feel comfortable doing it, especially because you know you've read the first three issues. That's like a a, a really specific dramatic arc. Where am I going to find room to sort of lay out every person's specific ability? Right. So let's uh, talk about the cast of characters. Let's talk about your team, first of all, your creative team that's on Stronghold. Uh, um, you have Kevin Roberts. Is that the artist? Yeah. I've been working with Kevin for a real long time. Um, we met in college in like 06. Okay. Uh, he's a, and, go ahead. And so what? It, so your role is specifically as the, the like writer and everybody has a hand in writing and plotting at the same time? Um. More or less, Kevin and I co-created the book, and we sort of co-plot it, um, but individual issues and uh, a lot of major story decisions um, more or less fall on me, um, largely because when we've had dis- we've had like sort of story disputes, um, and uh, I'm like, well, okay, well, I really feel like this works much better if we do it X way, and, and you know, generally, I, I, I get my way on story. Um, I mean, I do try to take everybody's opinions to, into account um, and to make sure that I'm not shutting anyone out of the story process. But like there's a there's a, a big thing coming up in issue seven that um, Kevin and I had a really intense disagreement about. And, and I was ultimately just not willing to budge on it. And, you know, it's going forward. OK, and you have someone else that helps with feedback or is it editing? Um, yeah, we have. 
uh, we had, I should say, uh, Heather Antos as our editor uh, on issues five and six, and she did some editorial work on seven, but she has had to withdraw because she actually is now working for Marvel uh, as an editor. And so she can't really freelance anymore. Okay. Um, it's a shame because she really, I mean, you've read it. There's a, there's a huge uptick in the quality between the issues she works on and the issues she doesn't. She drew some of my best writing out of me. Um, it's a, uh, she's an extraordinarily, extraordinarily uh, talented woman and um, people should be paying attention because she's going to be running Marvel in like five years. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, she seems really nice. Again, somebody I only know through Twitter. She, <laughs> so she seems really, really nice. Um, she's breathtakingly intelligent and she gets like the structure of a comic book in a really profound way. I learned a lot just working with her. When it came to assembling your creative team, like you said, you, you knew Kevin for a really long time. Um, it sounds like this whole project, uh, has like it, it took a long time to get off the ground and then what you know you even like revisited it and did did some reworking on it so we completely redid it we did six issues over the course of like between 2006 and 2011 um because you know we just didn't really have our, our shit together and uh we sort of took a look back after you know around the time we finished the final issue of our first attempt and was like we we've, we've learned a lot just doing this why don't we just go back and try again um, especially because I, I got very frustrated with the uh, limitations that I'd imposed upon myself as a writer when I was much less experienced, that um, I sort of felt like I'd forced myself into a corner and the story didn't really have any forward momentum. And so we decided to completely redo it starting in late 2011. There was a lot of planning. Um, and then we did a, you know, more or less got everything off the ground in 2013. So how much of the story resembles the first version Oh, kind of barely. Uh, barely. Originally, the whole like the book now takes place 20 years after the Earth was conquered. The original version took place during the invasion. Um, the first version was just really, really military. It was really campaigny. Um, there was a whole lot of and you know, this is what we have to do now to you know we have to defend this city and blah blah blah. And I got really bored with that. Um, I started experimenting with like you know really pretentious single issue pieces of crap stories um, and. and the first attempt is so preachy. Like I kept, I always wanted to have this philosophical like point I wanted to make. And so I'm trying to like structure a story around communicating this idea. And it's just, it's so ham handed and, and uh, shoddy. Um, That's the first version. The current book for everyone listening is spectacular, but um, the, the, the story is pretty different. Um, the structure of the team is different. Everybody's personalities are more or less the same. Um, one of the big changes is the original book really focuses very heavily on this character, Ruth, um, who's still my favorite, um, but uh, who I found in the current version, she simply had a lot less uh, dramatic weight than I thought she did. Well, I, th- I think it's interesting for any writer to go back and redo something and then to think that the art was all obviously had to be redone too because it's not like you were it's not like you were in a position to just like re-script the dialogue i mean you gutted it and you started over yeah we didn't preserve anything other than you know character names and some basic concepts and that's just like massively huge so there's 
the original version is somewhere out there in the world because you guys actually did sell some. We right? sold some uh, original, like we okay. After we did our first issue, this um, uh, this guy named Brett Carreras, um, who ran um, a, sort of a, a, an online comic books reseller, decided he wanted to get into publishing, and he put some money behind us and published our first issue for us, and it got solicited a diamond. So there's like 300 people who have copies of this part. Well, I guess there were like 300 copies that got sold you know, in comic shops. Okay. In like 2007, I've stumbled across a few of them on eBay. Um, That's it. And, it, that and I'm just, it's, it's deeply humiliating because it's such a bad comic. It's such a bad, bad, bad comic. That's it's really good for you to be able to say that because if you didn't grow at all as an artist in any way, you know, or not even in art, but if you're a computer programmer, or if you're a chef, or whatever it is, if you don't grow. And after years of experience, then then there's just something not motivating about that. Well, I mean, and there's a huge quality. Did I lose you? No, you. Okay, didn't. I heard a my I heard a sound. Um, <clears throat> there's a I mean there's a, a visual there's a visible you know you know visible growth between issues one and six of this current run. Um, I mean I I look back on on the first couple issues and I'm like oh there are so many things I would do differently. Um, the first issue, I guess the first two issues are really, really narration heavy. And because I, narration is, uh, sort of, a, was always sort of a crutch for me. And so I've made a real conscious effort to use it you know, as little as humanly possible now. And I find I tell tighter, stronger, faster stories without feeling the need to explain everything to everybody. What I find interesting about that and the, that some people think that narration is, too much. It's something I've gotten criticism on too. And yet I'll look at professionals who are, you know, like really top level guys who get to be guest status at shows and all that stuff. And I'll go and I'll look at their books and it's like, there's like, you know, 35 word balloons on this one page and it's all captioned. And the thing is they can get away with that because they know what they're doing. That's, but that's what I, I don't like. Why? Why? It could be the same. Basically, here's, here's what it comes down to for me is that if you're going to use narration, it has to it has to sing. You know, comics are a visual medium, and sort of getting that through my head took a lot of work. Uh, I seriously, I should show you this one issue I did that is the most pretentious piece of crap from the first from the first attempt. But speaking of, of narration, I've also seen real heavy-handed use in dialogue. There was, um, there's a new comic, relatively new out, and I don't, there's several out that are so similar, I don't know which one's which. But it's this, there's like Houdini and Lovecraft and Tesla, and it's like all these, uh, you know, the, the guys from, from this era all together. And, it, and in one of them, I was kind of excited. I'm like, okay, well, I like these, you know, historical figures. Let me go look this up. And the, it, there was just so much dialogue on one page. I wanted to just uh, like throw the book. I'm like, what? I'm like, it's it was literally like two big panels of guys talking to each other, and then you know word balloons. It was supposed to be like really rapid fire speaking, I guess. It's just like word balloons firing back and forth at each other through this page. I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's one way of doing it. <laughs> I've heard that's not what you're supposed to do, you know. And these well, are people who. Are- there's no supposed to. 
there's just basics of telling a story visually. Um, and once you've got that down, you can start to break the rules. So how long did you um, read comics or study comics before you decided to write them? Um, I've been reading and making comics since I was eight. Oh, okay, that's pretty cool. Um, I remember my first people. comic was this issue of Action Comics where, like, Superman is lost in time and he has amnesia and he's working as a strong man in the 40s. Um, but, uh, I mean, as, basically, as soon as, as soon as, you know, it occurred to me that I could just make my own frickin' comics, I, you know, started just drawing superhero stories and notebooks. Um, and even when I wasn't actively making comics, because for a long time, I just kind of like, you know, sort of stopped doing stuff. I was always thinking of new stories in terms of, you know, well, I could do this as a comic. How would this work as a comic? In your school, did you have any kind of script writing classes? Because I, I think we might have had like playwriting or something once, but I really don't remember anything about script writing. I think it was more like we were reading plays. I don't think we actually wrote any. No, I haven't studied script writing formally. Um, I've sort of had to uh, get there on my own. Um, I originally wrote issues of Stronghold um, in, I guess, in what's sometimes called Marvel style, which is you just sort of write a plot and then the artist interprets it and then you write dialogue and stuff on top of the pages that the guy draws. Um, but as I've gotten more confident as a storyteller, I've... Um, move to, you know, doing proper scripts. Um, the, uh, the cool thing is, you know, you, it's very iterative. So you just kind of, you just sort of start with a, a sort of a list of things you want to do in the issue. And you turn that into sort of a rough plot. And then you turn that into a more detailed plot. And then you break that down page by page by page by page. And then by the time you actually are just scripting, you're almost just formatting what you've already got. And so at no point does it ever really feel like it's a, a an, an enormous amount of extra work you have to do. You're always just adding a little bit. Yeah, that's basically the same way that I was taught to do it. Um, it was just uh, you have like a, a higher level view of your synopsis, and then you basically just drill down from there. Like, you know, what yeah. – what, key action and, and things that you need to work in. And then you figure out the pages and the page, do a full page breakdown and then you do panel breakdowns. I'm yeah, kind of sort of make sure you've got your beats and you know, you're generally good to go. Yeah. I kind of, you know, always trust the artist and just, you know, always put in little notes like, well, these are the panels as I see them, but if you want to change them, go ahead. But you know, it's like, yeah, whatever. I do that a lot too. Yeah. I mean, if you have somebody that you know that you, you really trust, if I'm, just scripting for an exercise like there's something I want to write then I don't know who's going to be doing it or if it would ever see the light of day so then it's a little different but um I have become the start of some working oh go ahead no it's just like it's, if it's somebody that I know then there's there's more trust there and it's a different kind of script the artist that I'm working with on uh, Andrew Jackson in space is um uh, Jason Smith and we um he, he expects a level of micromanagement from me that um I'm a little surprised by like we're having this one thing where he keeps on saying, well, what do you think we should do for page 17? What do you think we should do for page 17? And I would just say, I trust you to make it look good. And then he would come back. I still need your input on page 17. And I'm like, I, I gave you my input. I trust you to make it work. He's like, well, I have three options for you. And I'm like, pick your favorite one. 
They all look good to me. <laughs> and so eventually I just kind of picked one. And I'm like, I, I guess number three it seems to be the one you're happiest with. Is there any difference in uh, uh, working, you know, considering things like the difference in, in digital? Uh, I don't know if you're if your stuff is on any of the, the guided view formats or anything. Yeah. Stronghold is um, all six issues are on comiXology. Um, I'm not really sure what we're going to do with Andrew Jackson in space. What was your question? Well, I was just wondering if you tackle the writing process any differently, because I, I see that there's still a lot of people online anyway, the, the creators have been around for quite a while. Um, that still put a lot of weight into where page turns are. No, yeah, that still matters because especially if you're figuring people are going to be reading on paper. Um, I think, you, you you know, you want to make sure you've got your page turns, you know, just because if you're publishing something in multiple formats or even if you're planning on publishing something in multiple formats, you want it to work across the board. And page turns don't really translate to digital, but they, no, don't, they don't, but they don't hurt. You know, but the one thing that does, and this is my own beef and drives me crazy, are uh, double page spreads. Yeah, but they're the best. I love double page spreads. <laughs> they're the best in print. They're the best in print, and um, comics are still primarily a print medium. Um, I don't think I. I mean, I, I can't predict the future. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Um, I actually switched to print from digital last summer. Oh, that's interesting. I just didn't have really room anymore. It was I just more of a either. cleansing. <laughs> Honestly, it was like a big cleansing thing. Like I clean out my closets of clothes and I, you know, started doing that with my comics too. Uh, like, okay, what can I donate? You know, I recently got two big long boxes, like full of 70s Superman and Legion books. So I've got, I'm clearly making bad life choices. My apartment is not big enough. For my it's not even close. It's just a good sort of long boxes jammed into a corner with the laundry. Yeah, that's the thing. Like there, there is some really good uh, comic furniture out there, like comic cubes. Oh, I want those so badly, but where would I put them? Yeah, they're they're expensive, but they're be- you know they're beautiful because they're like really nice furniture. So it's the sort of thing that can you know doesn't doesn't have to be in your garage. It could be in your living room. <laughs> Yeah, but we'd have nowhere to put them. Like our our apartment is just not big enough for yeah, the stuff we have. We have to get rid of crap. Like crap, we don't need more furniture. Yeah, once you've moved, you might be rethinking the the white box. <laughs> <laughs> I moved twice, and I was like, oh god, I'm just not, I don't want to. I don't want to carry stuff. I don't want to find room for it anymore. It's. Just... I originally had my comics jammed into a closet, but then we rented out that room, and so now they're just kind of in my bedroom hanging out oh my goodness well, well i do want to talk about the plot a little bit more of stronghold <laughs> because you're talking about an alien invasion so you have not only a really diverse cast of your human characters but you've included alien races too and um diversity is obviously a really huge big deal to you know that's coming across all of our media entertainment in, in intake at this point and it you know it seems like you made a really valiant effort in making sure that your cast had different ethnicities and gender and everything yeah. and, and and not having it just be like oh well I have people with green skin or purple skin because they're alien like you did it with your humans too 
Yeah, it's kind of uh, uh, hard to justify not doing it, frankly. Um, um, my my uh, the artist on Stronghold is is uh, he's black, and so the discussion of diversity factored in from the very beginning, especially considering how self-consciously a diverse Power Rangers was to begin with. And so also just sort of in terms of play, you know, paying homage to our source material, that kind of diversity was necessary. Um, but, you know, I think it's valuable for its own sake. Um, representation really matters. You know, people want to see, you know, people like themselves, you know, that have some kind of play in the fiction they, you know, they consume. I get it. And your characters here, you've got them in all different types of, um, like, jobs. Like, you have some of them that uh, that seem like a higher class, but at the same time, they're subservient to their own bosses. Yeah. You know, so it was a really interesting power play that, um, you know, like, you had uh, characters like Mark and, and Julia. Like, you have one's a guard, and she's... Uh, Julia's actually like an aide to the governor who's one of the, the alien race people. And um, so they're in these real like authority positions, but at the same time, they're just, they have to answer to other, other people. And her especially like she is not in a good position, even though it seems like she's powerful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that arose naturally once we, you know, uh, decided the setting was going to be after a conquest was I'm, I'm really interested in occupation um, and the power dynamics of occupation. I'm also really interested in class issues and that plays into a little bit too, but um, what are, the, the, uh, the idea that there are people who are, who are going to, you know, ally themselves with the conqueror because this is the world they live in now and they have to make a, a go at it um, has always made um, not made. It's always um, really struck me in a, in an interesting way that, we we demonize collaborators when all they are is generally just people who want to get by in the world that they find themselves in. Okay, so you mean the like you have you have like a terrorist sort of plot that's going on here, but it's at this it's in a way it's called terrorism, but in another way it's called an, like an uprising. It's they're um, they're they're terrorists. They're straight. Yeah. They're terrorists. I'm, I'm not. I don't shy away from the fact that my heroes are terrorists and consider themselves terrorists. Um, terrorism is a tactic. You know, it's not a moral position. Okay, so I see what you're saying. So even though, um, like, there's this a group of humans that are rejecting their alien overlords at this point. Yeah. You know, the, like in you know, in Star Wars, they they have the rebels and everything. So, you want to always root for the rebels, though, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you want to root for the rebels, but it's easy when the rebels have uniforms and fighter jets and can present themselves as something in some kind of quasi-state uh, role. Like that's the thing. The Rebel Alliance has a government. They're they have a military. They have uniforms. They have ranks. They have hierarchies. They have commanders. Um, here we have. Uh, something much more complicated. They're a small group of people that does, they don't represent mass beliefs. We don't have, we have no evidence that there's a lot of support for them. You know, they're kind of this group of like five people who are just like, we're going to bring down the government with mail bombs. You know, like I've, I've sort of made my cast. They're largely, this kind of this group of losers, you know, you meet Ruth at the very beginning of issue one 
and she's about to commit a suicide bombing kind of just because she doesn't really know what else to do with her life. You know, she's angry and she doesn't really know why. And so she's turned to this sort of radical political thing just because she wants some kind of meaning to keep her going. And she doesn't even have that anymore at the beginning of issue one. Um, our main, the, uh, the character Ezra, who's sort of the leader of the terrorist group, he's like renting out some lady's basement and sort of trying to direct everything from his laptop because he just really wants to feel important. Um, there's no mass appeal. We don't have the sense that everybody in the world resents what's going on. And the only reason that uh, um, this is big spoilers, so if people are, you know, haven't read the first reissues, pause it or skip this part. You know, the only reason that the character Mark joins, the, and he's he's one of the collaborators, joins the, the joins the the team at all, is because he's angry that his wife was like not angry he's conf- he's trying to figure out why his wife ha- had already switched sides and he's just like you know and that cost her her life and he's uh trying to sort of figure out what's happening to his world because his personal world is co- is sort of turning turning you know all inside out but he sort of nobody is coming at this from a purely ideological perspective of you know yay human liberation everybody has really personal motives for being where they are um issue uh six and two and issue eight are really going to explore where the character Greg is coming from and how he plays into all this. Um, we find a lot more about what's driving Ezra, but nobody is really doing this because they have sort of these, these sort of like these pure ideas about, you know, you know, the liberation of earth or anything like that. Everyone's sort of out for themselves. And that's how these sort of things often go. I and mean, if you look at people who join terrorist organizations in the real world, you know, you find a lot of people who, you know, people who get like into into you know radical politicized Islam, um, they're people who are kind of feel like they're on the outs of their societies or they're on the outs of their communities. Um, you get a lot of people who um, sort of find in this in these sort of radical groups the kind of acceptance that they don't have elsewhere, um, and they're just sort of sucked into this vision of the world. Um, and so radicalization is not always ideological. I, I was rambling for a while there. I'm going to stop. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um, because it, it makes me think of things that we do see in the news, like those, uh, there were three girls who uh, left, I believe they were in London. Yeah. And they, you know, people, people are more interested in why are they doing this? Why are they willfully going somewhere dangerous and you know they're very likely to be used as suicide bombers and um there's a whole big uh, just interest these days and in, in especially i guess why women would do it i mean they do it to children and obviously there's no choice there but um women who are old enough to to be thinking through their own thoughts and having their own thought process you know thought processes and, and decisions seem to be getting sucked into some things People want to feel like their lives, you know, mean something. And it's amazing what, you know, you'll go, what you'll be willing to do to, to, to feel like that, you know. Right. I mean, right now we're going through the trial for the Boston uh, bombing, the marathon bombing. Yeah, so. you want a guy who had no ideology whatsoever, who just wanted to make, who just wanted his brother to like him? That's, yeah, that's certainly the way that they're painting it. Yeah. yeah. 
now your character. You know, I think even if that's not true in Joe Karsarnaev's, you know, specific example, that's still a thing that happens. It's an it's an influence, uh, you know, definitely wanting to impress somebody else. I tried to learn Polish in college to impress a girl. <laughs> that's pretty nice. It didn't work. I'm really bad at Polish. Aw. Your character, Ezra, um, I'm starting to get an echo. Darn it. Okay, your character, Ezra, as you mentioned, he is sort of a leader, but he kind of hides behind his computer. And sometimes when I when I think about the the men who end up being leaders of radical groups, whether it's, you know, religiously radical or, or whatever, I think of guys like David Koresh who had the charm and the charisma, like there was so much personality to them that started, that, that was why people got sucked in at first and then they end up feeling trapped basically. So um, I was wondering if we were going to, you were saying that, that we get to see more of Ezra in the upcoming issues. I was wondering if when it comes to his personality, is it, is it about him being really smart, you know, because he's he's capable of doing all of these things with his computer and stuff. Or is it because he's charming? Because he's certainly, like you said, he's not living large. He's not he's not wooing people with money. Uh, Ezra's big thing is he's deeply ambitious and he's very domineering. And so he's the sort of guy who's always the center of his circle of friends uh, just by the force of his personality. Um, the big relationship that is uh, that gets developed, especially um, really starting in issue six. So issues six, seven, and eight are going to be this um, this sort of uh, chapter that really focuses to an extent. I guess not seven. Seven's mostly about Emily, but anyway, um, that focuses on um, Ezra's relationship with Greg. That they're sort of longtime best friends, and um, but you get the sense that Greg is really kind of an Ezra's thrall. Um, and we sort of see how Ezra has sort of spent their whole life together, sort of manipulating Greg into sort of being his hand. Um, and so you, the the implication I'm trying to sort of draw out from that in terms of how it relates to your question is that that's just how Ezra operates. He's the sort of guy who wants to be at the center of everything. He's the guy who wants to be admired, who wants to be loved. And he doesn't really deserve it. And he kind of knows that. But he's got just enough intelligence, he's got just enough charisma, and he's just enough of a jerk to get people to do what he says. Do you know what the um, the, the checklist is, that, that there's a checklist that actually exists for sociopaths? No, I didn't. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a, there's a couple checklists. That, uh, I think you can just find it really easy on Wikipedia. And it's just interesting funny kind of scary how people that are that really successful in politics and business have the same characteristics as people you would consider dangerously insane (laughs) oh god (laughs) and you know and it's usually things like they're you know they're charming and um don't blame themselves when something goes wrong. It's usually, you know, finding blame somewhere else, that sort of stuff. We don't really get to see a lot of how Ezra sort of built his little circle of influence. It's just just kind of assumed because most of the story concerns his response to losing it. You know, 
you start to see starting in issue three that his ability to control everything is 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 rapidly being taken from him and he's getting increasingly angry and frustrated with it um at first you know it's it's largely he's just really frustrated at how mark who is an outsider who is a collaborator has now sort of taken over the leadership um and uh his increasingly frustrated desperate attempts to sort of seize come some kind of influence for himself again well, there's definitely going to be clashing of personalities because you have these, uh, you know, guys who are just civilians, hacker types, and uh, the the types that don't want to conform to anything. Suddenly, on a team with people with um, military and governmental connections, so there's I can't imagine them not clashing. Well, I mean, yeah, they, and they, they um, that cleave between the two gets um, gets uh, uh, actualized really dramatically when the team actually sort of splits in half at the end of issue five, you know, you have, where half of them sort of head out into the, into the parts of the world that aren't entirely pacified and the other half head back to New York to sort of stage, you know, their half of this plot to capture the city. Um, and so the the clash of personalities, I sort of avoid it by giving each by get, sort of by giving Ezra his team and giving Mark his team, and watching as they increasingly lose sight of each other as they follow very different goals. Okay, I look forward to seeing that part because it's um, it was definitely something that I there was like foreshadowing to you know to. Like I said, you have uh, you see Mark more in his guard and military role in the beginning. Then um, it's like for him to switch sides. It's like you just don't lose the military um, way in your your mind. You know what I mean? Like that's that's what he's used to. It's his life. He's used to a certain kind of structure. I don't think it's going to be something that he just can ag- agree to turn off. No, definitely not. And um, the sort of ultimate conclusion of the book, you know, assuming we get to issue 12, is going to be Mark's way versus Ezra's way. The two of them are going to come into a really sort of dramatic conflict. Okay, well, that's cool. I look forward to that. Now, we we mentioned that this does take place in New York City. Um, You have it set with 20 million people because it's, uh, like you said, occupied. Um, why New York City? Because I live here. You live okay. I, I, <laughs> the, I moved. We the first version we set in Richmond because that's where I was living at the time, and I came up here and I was like, oh, well, I I know the geography of this, and I read a lot of Marvel comics, and the geography of New York City is such a big factor uh, in Marvel books that that's just kind of something I wanted to bring in. Um, it also sort of made sense because New York is such a is such an important world city that it would function as a, as a hub uh, in an, for an occupation government too, instead of just picking some random other, other city. I mean, why not New York? Um, And I like being able to give things firm place. It's one of the reasons why I did set things in Richmond is because, you know, I have all the visual reference and I know the, I know the area and I could say, well, this takes place, you know, Grace and Lombardy and, and, you know, this takes place down in the museum district. And um, uh, being able to set things firmly in a geography, um, help cement me as a writer to to uh, what I'm writing. And I feel like 
as a reader, it gives everything a little, just a little bit more heft to know that these are, are places that have a relationship with one another. And so I like ref, I like telling Kevin, you know, okay, we're going to set this at Columbus Circle or, you know, get, vi- you know, visual reference of the University Heights, you know, you know, uh, Metro North Station um, by anchoring everything in reality. I think it gives everything just a little bit more weight. Kevin did a really great job with that whole scenery, like every part of it where he either, cause there's different, there's different types. Like you can see the city from like way back where it's some, you know, sometimes it's just somebody walking down a sidewalk and, and buildings are, you know, are there. And he did a really great job with establishing sets. and stuff. His environments are excellent. It's one of the things that I really love about working with Kevin is I can give him very specific things that I want out of a scene and he can just make it happen. Cool. Do you know what school he went to? Uh, we both went to VCU. Oh, okay. Cool. So, um, and that's large, largely it's an art school. You know, it has all these other programs. I went to, I studied English, but mostly it's it's famous for its school of the arts. Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't know if he like went to a specific art school. I mean, well, v, yeah, VCU's art school is, is, uh, is uh, very well regarded. We've got the best sculpture program in the country. That's cool. Doesn't really affect comics, though. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always a good uh, a good practice to learn a new dimension. It does, I guess, if you're doing anything like digital animation, even if you're doing clay sculpting and other um, plasticine sculpting and stuff like that. If you know those basics with the stuff that's right in front of you, then you could probably learn how to use the digital version. We had some comic artists who taught there, if I recall correctly, like George Pratt. Um, and I think Marco Jurjevic, or however you pronounce his name, was there at one point. I remember that was kind of a thing. I don't remember, though, exactly what it was. That's cool. Um, you know, New York City has plenty of good art. True that. My sister-in-law goes to SVA. Nice. Um, I, it's interesting thinking about, you know, New York and how you set this particular story there because, you know, obviously we're post 9-11 and it was such a global event, even though it was New York City. It was just something that affected such a bigger scale than than where it actually was than where Ground Zero actually was. And that's what, you know, seeing, um, because I never saw District 9 or, or anything, but I remember Men in Black, which is the comedy, um, you know, about how they had, uh, they had those locations where it's sort of like, uh, it's basically like going through a customs GSA kind of checkpoint. <laughs> and, but it's for, you know, for changing planets and stuff. And that's, what I got the impression of your version of New York City is like that. And you even have what what I found interesting, and I wanted to ask you how you came to this, was that you basically have the New York Police Department as like this friendly ambassador gateway. Oh, I just was walking around one day and I saw this, um, I just saw this big building and I was like, I want to use that. I just liked how it looked, and I and I, I like uh, I wanted to you know put it in central in uh, Lower Manhattan, you know the, uh, the the whole financial district area, and um, it just seemed like you know well that would be the sort of place where you did it. There, there's not like there's not like a, there's not an ironic symbolism to it. I mean, I guess there is sort of after the fact, but definitely- the other thing is that the uh, the integration bureau you know um, isn't. You know, I, there's, there's not a lot of detail in it, but it is 
it is an office of the occupation government. And so the, the, the important thing to remember is always that what the occupation says isn't necessarily the occupation is. And so, I mean, I guess it's also on that level kind of appropriate because what it is is a system of control. And that's some of the, the problems, though, that we have seen in various police departments. Yeah. Um, certainly Ferguson is still having problems, and they're probably pushing on, like, um, I don't know, like maybe 250 days or something yeah. since that happened. Um, it, so it's like going on a year that there's, that there's still just, you know, one of the various cities that's been torn apart and seeing things as, um, uh, you know, like the, you don't want to say re- rebellion, but they're, but it's the people versus. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I have the, all these big government signs everywhere in stronghold that say things like friendship and opportunity, you know, build us, build something good together kind of thing. Um, I'm fascinated by propaganda art. I'm fascinated by, um, um, how governments sort of communicate uh, their intentions to people or, or rather communicate what they want people to think their intentions are. I'm extraordinarily suspicious of sort of government, generally speaking. And, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by occupation, because it's one of the few times you get a government that's just legitimately seen as illegitimate by sort of the mass people. It's a different side of the coin as when we see political ads, which really are about tearing apart another target as opposed to building yourself up all the time. Yeah, it's it's completely different. It's all this super positive imagery, all this super positive messaging um, that is intended to sort of build this sense of community with, uh, in this case, an occupying force. Um, and I'm absolutely fascinated by that kind of by that kind of you know, politicking. The, my first recollection of that, I think, is from the movie They Live. <laughs> I think that's honestly, like, the very, like, I can't remember seeing it anywhere else. You had to put on your special sunglasses to see the real hidden messages. <laughs> God, I haven't seen that movie in ages. They Live. Masterpiece. It's brilliant. And I mean, they, you know, what's funny is that we're this many years later and I still I see people making memes of that. Like there are people that cosplay in that. I'm like, this is amazing. So there you go. There's some there's old timey. No, I love it. I am so on board. That's beautiful. Uh, I had this fast. I, I uh, had this fascination in high school, especially with sort of with uh, uh, communist propaganda. Um and the, the the state sort of perpetual effort to make itself look triumphant and bold and and this sort of grassroots thing and if you look at and it, it's, it was everywhere it wasn't just in like the messaging it was in how they structured their government you know in the Soviet Union they had they had a, a, a the Congress of Nationalities where there were like all the different ethnic groups in the Soviet Union had a Congress that would where they could promote their interests and cooperation and as if the whole thing wasn't just the Russians running everything, you know? And so um, this, I wanted to, I don't know if I, how much I succeeded. I wanted to give the occupation government and stronghold a sort of a similar kind of sinister friendliness. I think that's always the way it comes across. I mean, I didn't watch the, the very um, 
legendary movie Metropolis until I had to take like film appreciation. Oh, it's so great though. Yeah. Yeah. So I know I didn't see it until I was already like 20. I didn't either. Been given that image of a big giant screen and then, you know, messages coming across it. And then like during the, um, you know, all of the Ferguson protests and the ones related because of it. I mean, it's sort of under the Ferguson umbrella, even though there were various other activities. Um, I, there was like one in a mall and it was around Christmas time, I guess, to try and stop some Christmas shoppers. And the mall had this gigantic jumbotron screen ordering people to get out and that if they were not there to shop, then they were going to be arrested. Wow. And it was just this, that's perverse. Yeah, it was just especially considering how malls are you know were originally like sort of created to be new to be town centers for the suburbs that didn't have them. Right, you know, like they, you know, but they were people doing the they were, they would like lie down on the floor, and do the die-in protests, and then um, you know, some people would take their pictures and stuff like that. So in order to post to Twitter, is all over Twitter. Like that's all my Twitter yeah. stream was. Oh no, yeah. Like, um, and but to see that image when people started posting that mall's jumbotron, it was frightening. And you know it's private property. That mall is owned by somebody, so it's like a, considered a what's called quasi-public. It's not really, it's not public grounds. Like it's not a park. It's not owned by the government. It's owned by a company, and the company can kick you out. <laughs> so it's it was, it, I guess because of the the presence of, you know, security, which nobody really cares about. And then the presence of police being called in, the threats of police being called in, that just really escalates that whole image. No, yeah, that's... So, yeah, I'm right there with you. I think think the whole idea of being taken over is... uh, It's a powerful plot. And, you know, and you can go all different ways with it you know because maybe you know maybe who you thought were the good guys aren't the good guys and and you can change it there's, you know there's different ways to play that and you can have betrayals at you know at, at any given turn yeah i've tried to i've tried to make everybody you know on on both sides um as sort of broadly sympathetic as possible i want everybody to have at least comprehensible motives i want everybody to to clearly be coming from some kind of direction and not just have you know, sort of naked heroes and villains. Um, that the the ambiguity of of occupation is a big thing for me. I sort of want people to not be entirely clear who they're supposed to be trusting. Yeah, that's really cool. It's a, it's definitely a, a great uh, way to tackle the writing aspect of it. To get I tackle the what? To tackle the writing aspect. Yeah. So, um, okay, so guys, you're listening. Uh, we're talking about Strongholds, and uh, you can get six issues already. So there'll be definitely more to come. So now, Brian, I want to ask you what things, uh, what other things you're enjoying. It doesn't necessarily have to be current because I read stuff when it's old. So um, <laughs> what things you're enjoying, whether it's comics or TV. Well, I had vowed that I wasn't going to get that I was going to get through a, another podcast. Pardon, that I was finally going to get through a podcast without mentioning Deep Space Nine. I don't think it's ever going to happen. Uh, Why stop now? <laughs> um, I watched that show obsessively. I just finished up a run a few weeks ago. Um, so there's that. Um, um, what am I reading right now? 
Uh, I'm glad Rat Queens is back. That's an amazing book. I just picked up the first two volumes of Sex Criminals, so I'm finally reading that. And I have my wife reading Sex Criminals, the only comic she's ever enjoyed. Okay, yeah, I have I, I have mixed feelings about it. Like, I have read the first issue, and I, it didn't really grab me. So, But I, I did pick up a couple more just to be like, sometimes I, I recognize that it might just not have been my day for something. Yeah. And I'll revisit it and end up liking it. So... Uh, that's kind of where I am with that particular book. Like, I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm willing to give it another shot. But I'm, yeah, Rat Queens, I had been really enjoying. I'm glad it's uh, back. That was just, that was a complicated situation, but I'm glad it's back. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think they, they worked it out in a way and announced the changes in a way that was delicate and sensitive, unlike other things we've seen. And Sedgwick's art's perfect for it, so... Um, yeah, and he has his own, um, uh, his other project out, um, Sunstone. Yeah. I only, uh, saw a couple preview pages of that. Uh, I love Spider-Gwen. Absolutely. Oh, I'm loving, great. I'm loving it. That's an, that's a, such a fun book. I haven't, um, I haven't even seen, I just, I, you know, I was there during the Marvel Comic-Con panel in New York when they were making all of the big announcements for, like, Silk and Spider-Gwen and stuff. So I, I haven't actually seen the books yet. I've heard good things about Silk, but I have just given so... just I've cared so little about the character in Amazing Spider-Man that I just, like, I haven't been able to be bothered to pick it up. But people keep telling me it's great. Okay. I feel like yeah. I don't need another Spider-Book. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot. There's, well, you know. I only read Amazing Spider-Man and Spider-Gwen. Those, those are... Uh, those are my spider books, but I mean, like, I, I just, I only have so much money every week. Yeah, I, I admit, I dropped, uh, I dropped Amazing Spider-Man back during the whole debacle with um, Straczynski not being happy with it, and then not even wanting his name on it and stuff. That was like, that was as far as I made it, and then I just dropped it. And I never looked back. Well, I've been reading Amazing since like 1998, so I feel like if I dropped it, that would just be so sad for me. But I mean, like, I was also reading X-Men back then, and I'm not reading any X-Men anymore. I reached a point in, like, 2002. Actually, it was probably, like, 2004, 2005, when I was just like, I can't do this anymore. This is insane. There's there's too many books. There's too much happening. I can't follow everything, and I'm completely confused every issue. Yeah, that's why I like smaller series. Me too. I don't have to worry about continuity. Yeah, it's one of the reasons. Like, uh, I'm loving Silver Surfer right now. I've never given a single crap about Silver Surfer, um, but uh, uh, Dan Slots and Mike Allred's uh, run on it right now is such a unique and fun book. I'm not really seeing anything else like it. Well, that's good. I honestly, I'm so out of touch with it. I didn't even know there was a Silver Surfer book. I really recommend it. It's a, it's a, it's a really different, really different book. Um, Structurally, it's kind of like Doctor Who, um, in that the surfer goes to Earth and gets a human companion, and they tool around space. Um, but uh, they're they're humanizing the surfer in a really interesting way by giving him an actual companion. Um, I feel like it, the the surfer's isolation has always made him kind of a sort of milk toast character. Yeah. Um, so he was always we... just so stoic, you know. And eh, you can only, yeah, you can only, that, that can only sustain so much of a story. Yeah, he was barely bland. Now, was he? Did they keep it with the? He was like Norrin Rad or something. Did they keep the original, like, 
character that he was? Yeah, it's still, they... sur- it's still the same guy. It's still it's still the surfer. Same story, um, same history, same everything. It's just a, a really fun, unique new take on him. Okay. Um, let's see. So, any other cool books that you want? To- Probably. Let me look at my stack. Um, Dave by IDW was really fun. That was a, a crazy book. I finally picked up Curb Stomp a couple weeks ago. Um, I like books of that kind of punk rock sensibility to them. I really like um, Toe Tag Riot. Um, oddly enough, Spider Gwen. I didn't really think you'd I'd be able to consider a book by a, that ultimately is being published by Disney punk, but it kind of is. And that's um, that's pretty fun about it. That's pretty cool. Um, let's see. What other things did I read recently? Uh, well, I did read um, a bunch of issues of uh, Wicked Divine. Wicked in Divine. That book which, is so freaking great. It's so good. Like, I didn't have... It's one of the things where I, you know, when I see so much buzz about something, I'm like, if I get... If I get just sucked into this hype and then it's terrible, I'm going to be like the one person who doesn't like something, which I feel like a lot. That's kind of how I, I felt about Doctor Who for a long time. Yeah. Well, I'm like the one person who doesn't like Doctor Who. So. Oh, my um, God. We can't be friends anymore. Oh, no. You'll forgive me. <laughs> I don't know if I can, but I'll try. Um, I'm friends with people like Doctor Who. <laughs> um, the... Uh, yeah, so I, I finally, I, you know, things like Lumberjanes and... Um, That's a great breed. Wicked and Divine and Rat Queens and stuff. They're things that I came too late to the party. And some of it just has to do with time. Some of it has to do with just, you know, priority or spending money on stuff. So um, if I get press copies, I'm way more likely to check something out than if I don't. Wicked Divine is one of those books that I read and I get kind of angry because... Uh, Kieran Gillen is at this level that I sort of dream of operating at, and I, he plays these structural games in his books that uh, I have attempted and never pulled off, and it's yeah. it's so and you, frustrating. <laughs> you know a McKelvey book when you see it. Yeah, you know, it's just they've they've got this sense together, like especially in this issue, because I didn't read Phonogram, but I did read, I read um, Phonogram either. either. I, I read a uh, suburban glamour, which was really cute. Um, but the, you know, like this has that sort of, uh, I don't know if you remember the artist, Robert Nagel from the eighties. No, that's before my time. He did the Duran Duran Rio cover and he did oh, like some, Oh you, yeah. Patrick Nagel, Patrick, Nagel. Patrick Nagel. Yeah. I know him. We did a, an homage to him on stronghold number five. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So pardon. I can't believe I messed up that name. That's why I was confused. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and that's, when I see McCalvey's art, I, I'm just like, oh my god, it's just so clean. Yeah, it's the clean, he's got the cleanest lines in comics, I don't know how he does it. Like, he makes the, like, the pages are not afraid of white, you know, like, it's, the lines are perfect, everything's perfect. Yeah, it's mystifying, and it's got the sort of effect to it that's all its own, you, it's unmistakable. Yeah, so that's um. So I I was cruising through that, and um, and I finally, and I feel terrible. I had been putting Sheltered off. Like when I first started reading Sheltered, I was really into it, and then it was one of those things where I was like, okay, there's always new books every single month. There's something new to check out, and I just go to the next new new thing, and then I end up forgetting what I liked, and it's always like, oh, I'll get back to it. So now I'm like a year behind, and I start finishing Sheltered, 
and it's so damn good. <laughs> I haven't read it. That's uh, Ed Brisson and Johnny Christmas. Cool. Oh my god, it's just so goddamn good. And it's and it ends at issue fifteen, so it ends like this month. Well, that's actually pretty cool because I like books that end. Yeah, I do too. It's one of, I, really I, I periodically do. think to myself, how amazing would it have been if like Spider Man had ended in like nineteen seventy two? And we'd all just sort of moved on and created new characters instead of just having to perpetuate these legacies forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, yeah. yeah. As a writer, like I'm increasingly interested in doing just four issues, four issue books, and then doing something different. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like um, a complete story. Yeah. Oh man. It's like, it's like uh, one of the reasons why I'm generally in favor of shows ending. Like, okay. Oh. Did you, did you watch Stargate at all? No. Stargate was a show that kept getting canceled and then uncanceled. So every season the show would like definitively end and then oh. they'd get another season and then it would definitively end and then they get another season. And then finally at the end of season eight, they're like, all right, this is going to be the last season. We're really going to wrap up the show. And they put such a beautiful bow on the series. Right. And then it got two more seasons. Oh my goodness. And I see, I, I know other big deep space nine fans who are always like, you know, we need, we want, you know, we wish we had a movie or they, they're obsessed with the relaunch novels and it's just more, but it doesn't contribute anything to because the story was finished. And so you don't always need more. Right. I, I miss things. I miss things at end. Like, um, I really loved Monk and I really loved Psych. Oh my you know? God, Psych. Yeah. And they, they ended really, really well. Um, Parks and Rec just ended, and it was that was the best hour of television I may have ever seen in my life. Yeah, it was pretty great. I take um, that back, but it's still pretty perfect. Pretty good. It's it's pretty pretty good. Um, you know, so it's there are things that I miss, and I do miss them, and I understand the wanting more. But then when you see a, sh- a show go a little bit too long, it's like you feel that it's going too long. Yeah, like House. House went a little bit too long, as interesting as they kept it. You know, they always did something remarkable every week, but it still felt like it was too well, I'm long. I'm still in season one about House, and I do not care yet. Oh, okay. the, so far, the whole show is, and here's a bunch of people with no personality solving mysteries. Okay. So, but apparently my wife says it gets better. And it ran yeah. for like a million years, so I guess it must have. The House is a complete roller coaster. Um, but yeah, like, I love Community. But man, I hope this is its last season, and I never thought I'd say that. That I'm waiting. Um, I cannot imagine this show going on another year. I don't think it's on Netflix, and that's one that I've been. It's on Hulu. Oh, it's on Hulu. And the new stuff is on Yahoo Screen, and it's free. Okay, because I've been like specifically, I am I am a Netflix like marathoner. I'm that's why I watch stuff when it's like old. Yeah, I'm um, the same way. But I'm you know. Like, what am I, what am I watching? I've been, like, going back and forth. Like, Parks and Rec is, like, my happy brain fun food, no matter how many times I see it. Have you watched The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt yet? Yeah. What a show. Yeah, I watched that in, like, two days. Yeah, we did, too. We sat down and watched the first, like, six episodes in one go, and then we were like, it's two in the morning. We should go to bed. Yeah, and it was one of those things where it was like, oh, I, I needed this. Like, I just needed this. And, you know, because I'd started watching Criminal Minds and it's just like all this like gross graphic drama stuff, but not nearly as like graphic as Bones. But it's it's the psychology. It's Criminal Minds. It's the psychology of criminals. And so it's 
a, got a really great cast, but this, because of the crimes that they tackle are so just awful. There's just so much awful in it. It's like when, when Kimmy Schmidt came on, I was like, I'm just going to infuse this across my brain. <laughs> I just, I want nothing but that Kimmy Schmidt theme song. Yeah, it's like, the, it's sort of perfect. And it's filled a 30 rock shaped hole in my heart. It really did. Yeah, it was it was so well done. Um, yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of where I am with stuff. I get to things, I, you know, usually usually after everybody. So whether it's comics or TV, I'm usually kind of late to the late to the party. There's a, a couple things I watch current, and that's um, like Empire, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder, and Castle. Yeah, I um I have some sitcoms that I'm keeping up with at the moment. The only the only TV that I watch that's new is. Uh, what the hell do I watch? Modern Family, The Middle. There's a show fresh off the boat, which is amazing, which I did oh, not I did not expect that. I thought it looked so stupid, and it's it's brilliant. Yeah, it's really really great. I usually like save up a few episodes and watch them all at yeah, once. Yeah, I I uh, I just sort of saw a couple of positive comments in a row about it on Twitter one day, and I'm like, okay, it's on Hulu. I'll check it out. And I watched the first five episodes in one fucking sitting. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah, I watched that in Blackish, but they're like things that I kind of let build up for, uh, you know. To I haven't checked out Blackish, Blackish yet, mostly because I read some nasty reviews. Not nasty, but I read some less than flattering reviews, and I'm like, I don't have time for a show that's not getting good reviews, which is probably not the best attitude to oh. take. Okay. Yeah, I really love the the wife on that show. She's so great. On Blackish. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's got Lawrence Fishburne. How bad can it be? Oh, yeah, he's great. He doesn't have a big, huge part, but... Um, he should have a show where he's a detective. <laughs> that I would watch. <laughs> I would. I love detective shows. But, so, like, yeah. he's uh, a fun detective. He's fun. He's, like, a quirky, eccentric detective. Yeah. That'd be good. Work on that. Work on that. Pitch something. Kickstart it. That's the other thing. Kick, no, it wasn't Kickstart. It's Indiegogo with Nathan Fillion and Alan Tudyak. Tudyk. Of uh, Firefly. They uh they they funded their Indiegogo for Con Man. <laughs> oh my God! It just it 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 seems so silly. Was there any chance they weren't gonna though? I mean, no. Nathan I mean, Fillion I, and Alan Tudyk. I mean, I I it's one of those things where I'm like, these people are like rich and successful and are and have you know acting gigs and stuff. Yeah, but how I'm much like, money do they really have? That's that's the thing. Like we assume people are rich and they're not necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I assume Nathan Fillion is because he has a weekly show. Um, Alan, however you say his last name, Tudek, Tudek, uh, Tudek. He's um, from Suburgatory, and that really hasn't been on for a while. So, and it's and that was like a half hour show. So I don't think it would make he would make nearly as much money as like something like Castle. Yeah, and Castle's kind of a hit. So, yeah, but I do love Suburgatory. I haven't seen it. I think it's. And like, I've, I've sort of made a point of not watching Castle. Out of uh, just resentment for Fillion? No, or it's just... the weirdest. It's like the weirdest thing. I kind of, I, I had a, I have a really good friend who would Pretty. talk about it all the time. And I was just kind of like, screw you. I don't want to watch it. And so I, ha- nope. I never did. Mostly okay. out of spite. It is technically a Marvel property. Yeah, so I've heard. Yeah. But the, uh, the whole thing just kind of was just like, do I need another procedural with a quirky main character in my life? Haven't I, haven't I seen enough of that? It's one of the shows that feels like it's been on too long. Yeah, there's a lot of those. 
as much as I love it. It's one of my all-time favorite shows. Um, but they do have some comic book episodes. What's a comic book episode? Um, well, there's one where um, somebody who dies actually is the anchor of a comic book. Or is, uh, or it's either the victim or the murderer. I can't remember now. But it's somehow like um, connected to these guys who were working on a comic book together. And um, then there's another one. Let's see. I think it was where, oh, yes, where they had one of those like real life superhero people um, dressing up and doing like vigilante justice. That's always a great idea. Yeah. So they every show has done that. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Family Matters did that. Oh, did <laughs> Spike did it. Spike had a fun one. Um, I feel like if you're the sort of person who's going to put on a costume and decide, I'm going to fight crime, you probably deserve what's coming. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, in a way, they're they're looking for trouble because they're hoping to stop it, but they are looking for trouble and it might get them. But yeah, so there's they they often make uh, comic book references in in Castle, and it's fun. It's fun to spot them. Dig. Still probably not going to watch it at this point. It's a matter of principle. Yeah, I I understand that. I really do. Um, like I said, if if I if I think something is buzzed too much, I feel more resentful about it than like I'm afraid to try it or whatever. Yeah, like, I get that way. With TV shows, and not about comics. Okay. However, I, I have this weird resistance to watching trailers. So, like, when when you know, like the age when an Age of Ultron trailer drops, everyone's like flipping their shit, and I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I'm gonna see no. the movie. I'm gonna see the movie. I don't need to see the trailer to be excited about it. I just kind of I get increasingly frustrated when I feel like I'm being sold to you know like every time every time they release like a, a movie based on a cartoon I watched as a kid or something I'm like guys come on do we did we need a gritty G.I. Joe <laughs> we're gonna get a gritty Power Rangers and I'm like fuck I already did that yeah you basically did you made it <laughs> you know and, and I still haven't seen that Power Rangers movie that they that like that uh that short with Katie Sackhoff that came out a few weeks ago still haven't gotten around to watching it. And if anybody should have seen it, it's me. Oh, it was like a fan film or yeah, something. Yeah, it looked really good. And it yeah, I didn't co- I didn't have interest in it. I think so it's, I did have interest in it, but at the same time, I was just like, everyone expects me to see this. I, so you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just I'm such a freaking contrary bastard. <laughs> Now, right. if they ever did like a grim and gritty like Chippendales Rescue Rangers, I'd be all over that. Oh my god, can you imagine? No, but they're rebooting fucking DuckTales, so why not? Really, really? Like the cartoon yeah. or a yeah. comic? Oh, okay. Wow, that's wild. Well, Brian, it's getting late, and I already interrupted your dinner. Tell your wife I'm really, really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 we ate. It's fine. Okay. Um, Food, cheeseburger. Okay. It's delicious. Good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your the rest of your evening here. 
No problem. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Um, so, of course, Stronghold, um, is that going to be available in comic shops? Um, no, it's digital or only com- because that stuff is I- expensive. Yeah, it is. It's hella. So, okay, so I wanted to make sure that we tell people where they can actually buy it. It's on Comixology. Um, we've, we keep on trying to put it on Amazon, and it keeps on screwing up. So right now it's just on Comixology. Okay. Good to know. That's where you can find it. And do you have website info that you can share? Um, you can just follow me on Twitter at Brian Visaggio. I guess if you have show notes, you can put it. Yeah, I do. Um, we had a website. We don't at the moment. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say Twitter is always a great place to find you, ask you questions. Yeah. Very responsive on Twitter. All right. Um, and do you have any Kickstarters or anything that you need to talk about? Uh, no, we wrapped my uh, Kickstarter for Andrew Jackson in space last month. Um, we're going to be doing a Stronghold Kickstarter to print um, our next set of issues for conventions, but we don't have a date for that yet. So. So you guys can keep your eye out. Follow Brian on Twitter, and then he will be making announcements for Kickstarter. And meanwhile, if you read digitally, you can get Stronghold on Comicsology. And um, and I know I enjoyed it. I really look forward to to seeing the face-off between your leading characters there. It's going to be great. And, of course, uh, you probably already know where to find me, but if you don't, you can find me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter. And everything else is at amberunmasked.com. And if you want to sponsor the show and the website, just go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye.